listening to the Evil Brown, the Saddest Mexican Podcast. It's crazy. Ladies and gentlemen, estamos aquí with another South Bay leader, a legend, a man of many hats, a police officer, a teacher, former mayor of Chula Vista, current council member, up for re-election, doing his thing. You might have seen his name all over the place in the South Bay. Señor Steve Padilla. Welcome, brother. Thanks for having me. Man, it's great to be here. You are a, a regular, pre-COVID, you were a regular here. You know, you, we would always see you on the block. Definitely visiting all the spots. Chilvis Brewery, uh, Groundswell, Barcy Nombre, here on 3Punk, you know? Definitely. More importantly, before we get into into the weeds of all the things, how has this renaissance here in Chula Vista on 3rd Avenue, how does that make you feel, being a, a prominent member of, of a community? It's a passion. It's love. It's joy. It's awesome. You see the potential. You see the, the work and the investment and the, the sweat that goes into this, like folks like you and so many others. And it's long past due. And, you know, that's one of the things that's so, you know, we're going to get through it all. But, you know, it's, uh, you know, dealing with the COVID stuff and everything is tough. But we've got, a you know, a lot of great assets here and a great community. And you guys are helping tap that spirit. And um, we just need to hang in there and, and keep it growing. But I love it. I love it. And I do spend a lot of time down here and try <laughs> to do my part. What speaks uh, a little bit more volumes to what we're all about in the South Bay is that the majority of the people that I've mentioned, all actually, everybody I know who has a business down here on 3rd Avenue, they're all Chula Vista late, uh, locals, natives, South Bay natives, born and raised, you know. I'm here from Chula Vista, from Benita. Yourself, you are also a, a, a local forever, since birth? Just about. Born in San Diego, lived the first few years of my life in National City, and then moved to um, Chula Vista when I was barely five years old. So I spent my whole life here. That was a very different city then. <laughs> Not a, I bought a pad here. I bought a house here in the year 2000 without my parents. We uh here locally, three three blocks from the brewery, man. Three blocks from yeah, the brewery. Yeah. I live on Twin Oaks and Davidson. And uh, it is not what it is now. People yeah. always tell me about North Park and what it's now and this. Oh, I live in North Park, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but North Park 10 years ago wasn't North Park what it is now. No. You know? Chula Vista 10 years ago, 50, 20 years ago from my situation when my parents and I looked at the properties down here, it was not what it is now. Mm-mm. You know, you you definitely needed to look at this scope with a with a with 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 a, an eye for opportunity, and we did. And fortunately, everything has worked out. I mean, the neighborhood in which our house in, in which I'm raising my family in, is way different. You know, yeah. we are very comfortable walking up and down the block, night and day. It doesn't matter. You know, it's crazy the way things change. I would legitimately say I lived on a block where there were crack houses that surrounded me. And people came in with big money and just wiped those away, built new proud uh, residences up. And we yeah, are very yeah. family. I moved from the East, from East Lake to over here. I just didn't want to raise our kids out in, in, in East Lake. I just, in East Chula Vista, rather. It's like, there's no community. Nine to habla. And like, mm. everybody walks with their head down. They go from their garage out, from the out into their garage. Everything closes. And it's like, this isn't like neighborhood. This isn't like community. Everything is just like boom, 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 quick and unappealing yeah people need to be better integrated man and socially and you know they need to find those networks and those connections and it's hard sometimes in those really suburban kind of settings you're a man of many networks dude 
Hell You're in every old, network. Brother. There's no, there's no <laughs> network I've looked into that Padilla last name is not located in. I was like, Jesus Christ, how does this guy find the time to do all this? Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about yourself, man. Where your passions? Where did you start? What led you to become uh, once upon a time our mayor? Once upon a time uh, a detective in, in, in Chula Vista? Once upon a time an educator, city councilman? Back up for city councilman. Like what? Tell us. You're a busy dude, bro. You know what? Um, the basics are: is I grew up here. I skinned my knees here. I learned life's lessons here. I had ups and downs here, and uh, it's part of who I am. And you know, I'm part of what this community is. And um, you know, I love and this community. I have a passion for it. I have many opportunities, not just personally, but politically. People say, you know, what I, you know. Let's go somewhere else. You need to go somewhere else and be in politics, right? And what's up with Chula Vista? What are you doing down there? And, you know, and I had many uh, opportunities and people encouraged me to do that. And I said, you know, no, this is my, this is my community. And, and I see the, I see the beauty of it and I see the potential of it. So, you know, my story, it's, you know, my mom, I come from pretty humble roots. You know, my family are working class people. Um, my, uh, my biological father, and my mother uh, were high school sweethearts at Sweetwater High School. Nice. Sweetwater. In the late 1960s. They were National Red Devils. City. National City. And so uh, I was born in San Diego. I was born at the Naval Hospital. Mom and dad were high school sweethearts. My dad and a bunch of his buddies, right when they graduated in 1966, they decided, let's volunteer and join the Marine Corps. I did that. <laughs> and so, you know, if you know your history, you know 1966, the height of the Vietnam War. They volunteered. Off they went. Not all of them came back. Uh, my dad did come back. And then my dad worked for a company that used to be called Pacific Telephone before they bust, you know, the, mm-hmm. the big the big bust up of the the monopolies. And uh, he was a linesman. He used to put lines up on telephone poles. And he was a union guy, um, a communications worker, a young man. My mom and dad were a young couple. We lived in affordable housing. If you know the National City Park Apartments on West 24th Street, nice. right off of D, yeah. between there. And, uh, I lived there as a small boy. I didn't know it was affordable housing. I didn't know I was poor. And it's a credit to my parents, I think. Um, and uh, they had me. I had a younger brother, two years old. Uh, my mom was seven months pregnant uh, with my youngest brother. And my dad was killed in an automobile accident. And uh, my mom was, you know, seven months pregnant. And I can remember that uh, experience in that night like it was yesterday. Um, you know, today it's very vivid still. And we left that night, never spent another night in that apartment. My mom couldn't, you know, could not stand staying there uh, one more night. I couldn't you know, blame her, geez. was young mm-hmm. and she was pregnant and they were concerned. So we stayed with my grandmother for about six months, who also lived in National City, lived in National City for... God, 40, 50 years uh, before she passed away. And um, we moved with my grandparents for about six months, and my mom bought a house in Chula Vista. My dad had great benefits. He had great insurance. Uh, We were lucky for that. And she bought a home in uh, College Estates, which is the housing across from Southwestern College. And she bought that home in 1972. And I'm going to think about 1972, for a lot of folks who are probably born, there was no 805. 805 was not built yet. Um, there was nothing in East Chula Vista where I grew up except the college, Benita Vista Middle School, which what used to be called a junior high school, the high school, and the housing behind the college. There was no other housing. There was no East 8th Street. There was no 
anything east of 805. Chula Vista basically stopped at Hilltop Drive. That is old school Chula and Vista. Old school Chula Vista. And I was out in the boondocks and my, my grandmother had a fit. She's like, why are you taking the kids way out there in the middle of nowhere? And then, you know, we were little. She's like, and my mom was a, a very uh, strong, amazing individual. And uh, so she took us out there. So you went to middle or junior high at that time to Benita Middle? Yep. Benita High? Yep. My man, I did as well. Yeah, go Barons. Oh, go Barons. Go Crusaders, go Barons. <laughs> That's I right. think I was there the last year uh, the junior high was recognized as a junior high. Before they went yeah, to middle we school. Yeah, I was in eighth grade when they turned into a middle school. And then I started ninth grade at Benita at high, school. high School. Yeah, it was yeah. crazy. Was we just seem so little. No, because we seem so little <laughs> compared to all the big old animals yeah. that were there, man. I mean, I was like, what? I'm, everybody just seemed big to us. We were just little kids messing around. I enjoyed I enjoyed the middle school atmosphere. You know what? It was at seven, eight, nine. You know? But no, they took that away from us. And nine, you're going to high school, Canico. I was like, ni mo, pues ahí vamos. <laughs> Here we go. I'm on the ride. I don't But you know, it is a big leap, right? It's only three years. But that's a big three years. I think that's a pivotal three years. Yes, it is. It's like cavernous. It's like yeah. the Grand Canyon, man. Like when you're, you know, in, uh, you know, ninth grade, freshman, whatever before a senior that's a that's a bro all of a sudden i'm like 13 14 showering for pe or for sports with 17 18 year olds i was like what the hell is going on it's just awkward but i was like whatever it is what it is (laughs) i'm gonna roll i'm gonna become a man now (laughs) (laughs) whether i want to or not Like Benita Vista High School led you to you, – did you do your schooling all after post-high school here in, in, in San Diego as well? I did, local school. And then um, what was interesting is um, you know, my mom remarried and a great stepdad who still lives in the house where I grew up today. Uh, uh, you know, My mom is uh, no longer with us. We lost her suddenly in, uh, a while, you know, in 1997 to lung cancer, never mm-hmm. smoked. And that was tough. Um, but uh, you know, growing up, I was pretty lucky. I had you know, you know, a pretty awesome parents that I think uh, taught me a lot. And um, like I said, my dad is still there. He's my dad because you know he's my stepdad technically, but he's never been a step. And he's my, been the know, man. He's been the man mm-hmm. my whole life and helped shape me. And um, I love him more than I can express. And he's still there, you know, and the same in the house where I grew up. And uh, uh, but yeah, local schools. And then uh, I went into law enforcement. Yep. Right out of high school. So I went to um, the police academy right out of high school. I was one of the youngest recruits that graduated at the ripe old age of 19. How do you? <laughs> Yo, and I started um, I started uh, in the reserves. Um, I started here in Chula Vista as an Explorer Scout. I went to the reserves, ended up in Coronado PD, and ended up as a detective. And I worked on a couple of... Regional groups that worked on uh, issues that were region-wide, but what I primarily did during that time was uh, child abuse and domestic mm. violence. So, you know, not real uplifting stuff, but not I went, really. <laughs> man, I went to the academy before I went to college and I went to law school. So I kind of did it backwards in, in the, the middle class hard way. I worked worked while I was going to school. and um, That's the only way we know down here, though, man. That's it. I mean, it was <laughs> like I wasn't one of these guys, you know, with a big trust fund and I could get sent to some dorm and do nothing but go to school full not time. I would Bay. love to have, but not, it was not my story, right? <laughs> do you know anybody like that? I don't think I yeah, know anybody. you know, one or two. And I'm like, damn, <laughs> the damn, must have been nice, you know. Like, I would have loved to have done nothing but study. But, you know, whatever you can do to lift yourself up. Um, and, um, yeah, so, you know, worn a lot of hats, done a lot. What led you to the law enforcement from high school? Was that like a 
this is the only opportunity I currently have. I don't really want to go to college yet. I want to take some time off. I want to start a career in law enforcement and see where that takes well, me. Well, you think, you know, I tell people I'm great. First of all, I think a lot of people that work in law enforcement are wonderful people, salt of the earth. They do a very difficult job, trust me, a very thankless job. Having said that, you know, it's interesting how my life has evolved. As a political leader, I'm pretty progressive. I'm pretty liberal, progressive guy. And, you know, I support the conversation that we need to have in our community about institutional racism and about bias and about educating and growing our communities in ways that we need to have, you know, as a community family, we need to have some pretty tough conversations as a country. So, um, you know, I feel like they're not mutually exclusive. I can be supportive of uh, the professionals that we have today. And I can still say, we got some problems we need to address uh, that are not okay. But having said that, my experience there was good for me. I'm glad I did it. I would never have gone on to do some of the things that I did had I not had that experience. So my my law enforcement t- uh, family kind of taught me to believe in myself and to to be able to do. I mean, if you, I mean, I was when I was in elementary school, man, I was like the skinny little kind of shy kid. Um, I was a little different. I think I you know knew I was different then. I used to get in fights like every day yeah. coming home from elementary school. My mother would freak. She'd yeah. be like, I come home with the ripped shirts and everything. And she would, you know, it was just ridiculous. I was in it. But if you'd have told me when I was that age, well, you're going to be a police officer. You're going to be arresting people twice your size. You are going to be a politician someday. You're going to give speeches in front of thousands of people. I would have peed my pants. I mean, I would have have said, you crazy. (laughs) Um, So what I learned in that experience was I learned a lot about the world. I learned about people I learned about myself and um, I did some things I never thought I could do. And so I'm grateful to that experience and it was a rewarding experience, but I always knew going in, it was something I wanted to do for a period of time, but it wasn't something I so wanted to make So it was a temporary fix for yeah. the ultimate goal. Yeah, but I didn't know what the ultimate goal was. I just knew that I, you know, it took me a long time to really gain self-confidence. It took me to be you, in high did school. Did you get that? Did you obtain that through your experiences in being in law enforcement? Yeah, it helped oh, a nice, lot. Nice. So it helped a lot. What was the path that you took in law enforcement? You you were obviously in the academy, and from there you jumped into um, started a, out abuse, in patrol, domestic abuse. Started out in patrol division and did some um, professional development and training around uh, investigations okay. and forensics and dealing with sexual assault, dealing with child abuse, um, dealing with the dynamics around domestic violence. All of the dark. So the dark stuff, yeah, some of it, you know, so I did everything. And even in a tiny little town like Coronado, vacation spot, beautiful, great place to go to the beach, you know. So usually uh, the towns that have the most high, my man. Dude, <laughs> let me tell you, like everything from traffic tickets to homicide, I saw it all. And everything in between. Because, you know, when you have money, where there's money, there's, you know. Corruption? There's corruption. <laughs> there's other problems. There's interesting. CD uh, behavior. Things going on. Yeah. And oh, so, man. uh it was a trip. Yeah. Uh, you know, a couple times, if, if I, you know, one for uh, the universe, man, I, I'm, I did not almost come home. Oh. So, a couple so times. <laughs> you were in Coronado. And then from there, you decided to take another jump. Another hat Crazy was needed. Crazy boy. 
What, what, what was the next jump from being in well, law enforcement in Coronado? Well, there was a, I, I always knew I wanted to study law. And mm. I always knew that I was a total nerd about politics and stuff. Because growing up, like I had it around the table, right? Like, like my dad was born and raised in San Diego. He worked in the title industry. So he worked on development projects mm-hmm. and worked with builders and stuff. He did some work on Petco Park. Well-connected man. Yeah, my dad. Yeah. my dad's signature is on some topping out beams on some of the buildings downtown. Nice. And he worked in that industry for a long time. And he was like an old school, like business. Republican dude, right? Like, not like out there crazy right wing type, but just like, um, you know, I'm a business type guy and I like lower taxes and I like smaller government and I'm like an old fashioned Republican dude. My mom was born in Massachusetts and her family, like, you know, hardcore Democrat, you know, progressive uh, union people, right? Many states, famous, same kind of uh, ideals. Exactly. And the dinner table man, sometimes my dad would like start these discussions with oh, us no. and he would take a position just to make us defend our position. Like he didn't necessarily believe what he was arguing, but he wanted to see how we argued. Right. Good, good. So I grew up around that kind of stuff. And my mom sometimes would be funny. She'd be like, knock it off. <laughs> Shut up. This is the dinner table. Stop it. And, you know, because it was at some point we would just get going. Right. And my mom would be like, all done. Uh, so I grew up with an interest. In politics, I grew up reading the newspaper. I grew up pe- keeping an eyeball on the news. Like a long you know, lost like art, was, reading the newspaper. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I miss touching the real newspaper. So yeah, so I always I wanted to get involved. I think partly as a kid, it's what appealed to me to experience the law enforcement thing. Because then when I was very young, I thought I don't want to sit around in an office all day. You know, I don't want to be. I want to be out where the action is. Right. Of course, when you're young, you're like you don't understand. Some of that action could be pretty scary dangerous and dangerous and you know and there just there was a lot more for me to learn and do so i got involved in politics pretty early so i went to school studied law i stayed in the pd and there was a lot going on in my life um um you know uh my daughter was pretty young uh i uh was on boards and commissions here in Chula Vista, guy. board of ethics, safety commission, stuff like that. And then I decided to run. Oh God. Now you're going to know how I'm really old. I ran for office <laughs> the first time in 1994. And I was 1994, 94. Bro. I was in my very early twenties. What position were you trying to hold at that time? I ran for city council here in Chula Vista. City now a little I, background on that position. You always, I always hear the, the term city council thrown around. I know what it is now, but I know a lot of our listeners probably don't know what exactly is the role, the position of a city council member here in the city of Chula Vista. Ooh, well, Chula Vista has its own government and its own constitution, basically. It's a, it's a, it's what we call a charter city, which means it has its own constitution. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just follow the laws of the state of California, how it runs itself, but it has its own charter. And that charter is our constitution and it sets up our government. The council is basically like our Congress or state legislature. The, the, the council legislates and the council sets policy. We deal with deciding what the budget is. We decide where to spend money. Very, very touchy subjects there. And it's not easy. We decide, well, how many city departments are there and what are they and how many people are going to be in the fire department and how many in the PD and everything in between. So dealing with land, how do we develop land? Um, How do we regulate um, everything a municipality does? So you're basically a legislator for the city. You set policy. Um, There's five members, including the mayor. Um, The mayor is uh, full-time. Has been for decades. 
And the council is still technically part-time, but it really is. It's really a full-time job with, like, part-time pay. Uh, because Chula Vista today, as you mentioned earlier, it is not the small town it used to be. As of today, like right today, if we were to estimate the population today, it would be hovering right around 300,000 people. Yeah. And it will build out somewhere between here and half a million people. So it's not a small little town anymore. And nope. so you're going to see, I think... In the coming years, you're going to see a full-time council as well, and you may even see some changes to the structure of government where you have a strong mayor like you do in San Diego. Um, you know, So there's just a lot of things as a city kind of grows up and gets bigger and bigger. Um, you're going to see stuff change. What but do you think of that? I think we got to have people – the people who are ultimately the deciders have to be accountable to the people. That's it. Once upon a time, you were a mayor. I was. But How I loved was it. that experience for you? It was awesome and traumatic, right? Um, because, again, getting back to when I left law enforcement, I ran for office, you know, I got divorced. I was not in a happy marriage. There was a lot of events that happened around that time period, 1997, 98. I got divorced. I got custody of my daughter. I was a, a young single parent. and My daughter was four years old when I got custody of her. So I was already a public official. I was already elected councilman, very public. Got very full plate, in addition full to be plate. a family man. And then I got my daughter, and it's me and my, you know, her mother lives in the East Coast. So I had a lot, but I was also on a, a lot personal journey um, that was a whole nother, you know, we could spend all kinds of time on that. But, um, you know, it was sort of my own coming out process. Yeah. So um, uh, when I was mayor and I ran in 02, interestingly... Um, my opponent in 2002 that I defeated to become mayor was Mary Salas, who uh, people should know Mary and I have an incredibly close, special, amazing relationship. She says the same thing. Um, she's about two weeks apart in age from my mom. She knew my mom. Um, we've known each other and worked together for nearly 25 years. Um, That's I, crazy. I, is that crazy? And we've known each other since we both got in politics. Um, you know... I have an intense, an intense um, love and respect for Mary. We are, we're very close, personally and, and politically, very close. And that comes from all those experiences. But it's ironic when I look back almost, what, 20 years ago, whatever. God, I feel old. It was Mary who I defeated to become mayor. Yeah. Um, and um, That must have not been fun, but awesome yeah. at the same time. It was, you know, to be elected when you're pretty young, to be the mayor of the city where you grew up. Is something, you know, and it was an awesome honor. Um, but it was also a difficult period because it was a time when I decided uh, to say publicly for the first time what I, my family and friends had already knew, that I was a proud, out and proud gay man. Um, also a Latino brown gay guy. So I was a double threat. And, you know, I paid a political price for that because there was as much as there was love and community and support and I saw the strength of our community. I also saw that there are people in our community who are hateful, who mm -hmm. are ignorant, mm -hmm. who who have their own issues. And I was on the receiving end of a lot of that. And so I was challenged for reelection. Uh, things that I did, some good, not some not so good, were, were um, made into even bigger issues because of who I was. People were looking for a, a cover 
to say, I don't like that guy. Now, they knew they couldn't say out loud, Why? I don't like that guy because he's gay, Correct. or I'm not going to vote for him because he's gay. But if I, you give me something to hang my hat on, mm -hmm. I might just make that up and say that's the reason that's why. That's the reason I'm going in on him. And so you went from overnight being this kind of rising star with a future, right? Mm -hmm. A political future. Could do no wrong, yeah, right? for like sure. this rising guy. And, and then, then all of a sudden, you can't do nothing right. Like every little thing you do is a problem and is wrong and is a mistake. And it was just a, it was like a waterfall of negativity. And it was very personal. You know, I got threats. I got crazy. I had people, guys showing up in my lobby with a gun and a cereal box. I had Ugh. people making, you know, just crazy people showing up. And so it wasn't just a political challenge. It became and personal. It was very personal yes. and it was very painful. And I lost, you know. People, it's very hard for people to understand that one San Diego historically is very conservative. <laughs> you know, Chula Vista even more so. We were we, for better or for worse, we're we're big, but we still sometimes have those small time small town mentalities, which makes us in turn very conservative with the things we do. Still here, Chula Vista, regardless of the demographic that 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 builds us up, I I see it. You know, I, I'm a business owner here. I'm out and about. I see what's going on. Yeah, I come across a lot of like things that make me like, what the fuck's going on here? What's really going on here? You know, but. I'd like to say that we're, we're, there's progress, we've been moving forward, especially with all the social, like, like almost like a revolution that's going on, gone on during the, the pandemic. You almost want to think things are teetering towards the, the, the positive side of, of things, but it's crazy that people still don't realize how conservative of a town one San Diego is, and within that spectrum, Chula Vista. True, in many ways, and not all of it's bad. And, and, but I will say this what I've also learned is, you know, Dr. King said something like, um, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Mm -hmm. And true. I uh, went through hell. Uh, you, know, my, my, you know, for me, I wasn't a wealthy guy playing politics as a hobby. You know, it wasn't like I had a bunch of money stashed away. I had a business built up that if I lost my race for my job... Then I'll just go back to doing, you know, no problem. You know, I'm just one of your typical. Backup plan number back two. Plan Here's my six-figure backup Here's plan. Here's my six-figure. <laughs> no, no. It was, you know, it was a fall that was hard and and, and far. And, uh, you know, I went through a very difficult time for it. It took me a decade to rebuild my life and to rebuild my career. And it, and um, I went through some very difficult, hard times. Which leads it to the next question is, what prompts people to jump into politics, especially local small town politics, where it's like you see the presidential election and everything that they go through and even like on a much larger scale, like here in California, rather like senators or whatever, governors. It seems that it's more cutthroat at a more smaller community based level like here in Chilvisa. I haven't seen so much mudslinging since I really got my finger on the pulse of local politics here, man. I'm like, holy crap, these guys, these people are really going at each other. At some point, it's no longer, like you said, it's no longer political. They're going at each other, like, and it's personal. It can get more personal, I think, in smaller circles when people basically have a smaller mindset or the political community is small. You know, you may have a big city, but you have, you know, a, a much tighter group of people that are really active politically in the community. So it's like a smaller community, right? And it can get very personal and it can get crazy. And I think it's it's unfortunate. And I think we have to do our part to try to reverse that. I think we all have a responsibility. To, and I think, frankly, not to be partisan here, but I mean, I think it's been made even worse in the last few years oh, for sure. <laughs> and starting at the top. And I think that, you know, there's an old Italian saying, when the fish rots, it stinks from the head. Right. And I think 
I think that when the top that head is, is smelling right now, smelling like you know what, and they're sending out a vibe and an attitude and a you know setting the wrong example, it's amazing how that trickles on down to the whole society, and we're seeing that now where people are just angry and pissed. Never mind the pandemic, and people are at each other's throats, and it's sad. I think this leadership has um, appealed on purpose in a cynical way to the worst in people on purpose and continues to do so. But in my own opinion, I think he's in for a big rude awakening come uh, November 3rd um, because I think Less the country's than, over it. weeks away, my man. How you know crazy what? is that? <laughs> I can't wait. That is crazy that it's just kind of cra- – the whole pandemic has been like a two-week – ordeal you know <laughs> i was talking to my boys last week and i was like it went from one week we're like we're getting shut down and then all of a sudden here we are voting for a new president it's like holy crap that thing's elevated rather quickly and i'll bet for you, and I'll bet for you guys in some ways it seems like both a long time like an eternity but also it's been for me especially past here at the brewery or at the bar or just in general with the kids at home and in life it has been the shortest of times, it has been the longest of times, you know, with, as it relates to business, it's been quick from one day from jumping hurdles, jumping through uh, fire laden hoops just to make sure we're open, doing the dance that lets, lets us maneuver through being operational to, you know, just distance learning at home with the kids and wifey at the helm, uh, continuing to work myself. It's just been, it's been crazy. That is crazy. I don't know how you guys do it. Cause I mean, I can't imagine my daughter being that age and being home. like, Oh my God. You know, that's not as tough, you know, um, it's different for them. And it, it puts a lot of a lot of challenges and, and strain on people. You know, I mean, you personally were affected by yeah. everything that went down during the pandemic, COVID, coronavirus. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, I'm first and foremost grateful. I try to remind myself that every day because every every one of us are having a hard time right now on so many levels. Right. Let's just be honest about that, whether it's just emotionally or mentally or if it's financially or it's just day to day or it's all the all the uh, isolation. It's hard. It's Nobody's hard on come everybody. out un- clean from this. Nobody's no, come nobody's out like untouched, out untouched. You know? Yeah, exactly. Because everybody's getting hit by it in different ways. And I just got to say, you know, first, I try to be grateful. I try to remind myself every day, you know what? Uh, you you uh, got very sick. You almost didn't make it out. And here you are. So that's first and foremost. But. You know, I'll tell you, yeah, it was, um, and I got exposed to COVID in early March. Um, I was apparently the dubious distinction of being the first official in California to have COVID. Early March. So early you got March. it on the onset, right from the get. When everything was hitting the Completely fan. unknown. Completely unknown still. I mean, still relatively unknown. Here we are in November, you know, but in March, it was completely <laughs> like... It was new and scary. A room, a dark room, and like, what's going on here? What's happening? What does this mean? Is the world coming to an end? And it felt like it. Remember the hospital ship going into New York City, um, all of the stuff that was being prepared, all of the warning. You know, to me, I think to most of us, right? You're looking at COVID, you have one eyeball on on like CNN, and you're like, oh, that's a thing in China, and uh, it's bad, and it's coming over here, maybe, and then. Oh, it's in Europe. Oh, then it's on the cruise ships. It was just interesting to watch that development. Mm, Legitimately interesting to watch the whole arc of, uh, this is happening in China. That's not going to happen here. Oh, man, it jumped to Spain. Oh, wow. Look, at it's taking over Europe. Washington State? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. Chula Vista's a hotbed? You know? But it, it happened quickly. It, and it, it was, it was here. Crazy. It was here before we knew it was here. Yes. Which is another reason why I'm pissed at the guy at the top. 
uh, because uh, people knew more than we knew. Um, but I will say that, you know, you don't, you always think, oh man, you know, it's kind of scary. You got to kind of follow everything. But I was, um, you know, one of the things I also do, and this, you know, because of the position I hold in Chula Vista, is for the second time I serve on California's Coastal Commission, which is a commission that basically runs land use on the whole coast of California. No, okay? no greater emphasis in the last few years than that right now, my man. That carries a lot of weight, that commission. Oh, my God. And it's, there's a lot of challenges, sea level rise, all kinds of stuff. But I'm also not just on the commission. I was appointed by the Speaker of the Assembly, Anthony Rendon. Um, but I'm not a- the California Allenheim Angel third baseman. Anthony Rendon, a different one. <laughs> Although he's a fan and he is out of LA and he's a good guy. <clears throat> but um, Anthony appointed me and um, I was uh, elected to the leadership uh, last year. So I'm the chairman of the commission also. So I'm very busy with that. And, I, and the commission meets up and down the state. So I had a meeting in Santa Cruz in March. Our meeting was in Santa Cruz. So I had to fly to San Jose, drive to Santa Cruz for a three-day hearing. Coastal Commission. But the weekend before that, I had some stuff going on. I had my niece had a birthday party. I was with family. I met a bunch of friends at a bar in Hillcrest, um, you know, called Flicks, plug. Um, plug. And, <laughs> pay me later. You know, I'm sorry, to pay you later. Uh, you know, we're out on the patio. There's a group of 10 of us, loosely, you know, packed together, having a good time, having some drinks, doing some shots. Before we knew. Before we knew. Before this we this knew is early March. Yeah. This is the weekend before I fly up for my meeting in Santa Cruz. So we're at a get-together on the patio, having some cocktails. Ten of us together. Five of the ten got COVID. 50%. It turned out. One other one, seriously ill. So that was a trip. Then on Sunday, there was a big political brunch in La Jolla for an organization called Victory Fund. Victory Fund is a national organization that supports LGBTQ candidates, puts money behind them, uh, uh, kind of cultivates them, trains them, gets young people involved in the political process. So, so I was out with some friends, the 10 friends, half of which got COVID later. So that's suspect number one, right? Then Sunday, I'm at this brunch and we're having a buffet and everybody's huggy kissy and we're all like the program and right? Clueless. Then I fly to San Jose Airport. Oh, by the way, I found out the same day I flew through San Jose Airport, the TSA guys at the airport, they all tested positive for COVID. So, dude, it was like I was trying to catch this almost without knowing it, right? You were chasing it. (laughs) I was chasing this bug and I didn't mean to. And so I... You know, I fly up to my hearing in Santa Cruz and like Wednesday goes okay. I'm like getting little snivels, you know, like, I mean, you know, I'm like a little teeny in the back of my head. I'm like, you know, I hope there's nothing going on, like China thing, you know, yeah. my God. And, uh, but you know, this, I have some mild asthma. I, I have allergies all my life. I'm like, ah, you know, but by Thursday afternoon, finish my hearing, I'm starting to feel like shit. I mean, I'm feeling like shit. And so I go to my hotel and, and right about that same time, Everything's hitting the fan. Like the news is like, it's here. Doomsday. They're going to shut stuff down. One day to the next. Gavin's winding up. You know, (laughs) he's going to do something. Like I knew, you know. And I'm like, oh no. And I stayed in my, even the hotel, they wouldn't do, they all of a sudden they stopped room service. They're like, oh no, no, we're not coming. We're not coming to your room. You want some food? You got to come down here. So I'm like, totally like fever. I'm starting to feel like crap. I go downstairs to get my like meal to go. I stay in my room. 
The hearing is Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Coastal meets three full days for hearings at least a month. I called one of my colleagues from bed Friday morning, and I said, "Take the hearing. I, I'm not. I'm I'm flying back to San Diego." And uh, Tony Cruz, who's my staff, uh, one of my staff guys here in Chula Vista, was with me for the hearing, and we went to the airport. I sat in the back seat. Well, he drove, you know, we got to the airport and I flew Because still home. at that point, we didn't know what the proper protocol I was is. hoping, man, I had the flu. Can you yeah. imagine hoping you have the flu? Like, God, I hope yeah. I had the flu. So I get home. So now it's like Friday afternoon. The next day, Saturday, you know, I start having really high fever, like 103, almost 104. Now, for an adult, that's a dangerous fever. Um chills, all the fever symptoms, all the symptoms. I'm like, damn it. Right. So I call my doctors and I'm like, Hey, this is what I'm experiencing. Oh, by the way, I just threw, flew through the San Jose airport. And of course that flagged it for them. They're like, Oh really? You were at San Jose? Cause right then everybody was focused on all the TSA agents had all exposed a bunch of people. You know, little did I know. I also had two other events that I probably could have got it at too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But they said, get your ass in here. Like, you know, within so many hours, you need to get tested. They they worked me up in the ER. So I drove up to La Jolla, up to UCSD uh, Health, which is what I belong to. I went up to the hospital up there, and uh, they tested me, and they said, well, we're going to do these tests. We're going to send you home, blah, blah, blah. And they called like three hours later lady, and said, man, you have COVID. You have the coronavirus. And, uh, and I'll never forget, she said to me, too, like, I'm really sorry. Damn. And it was almost like. <laughs> what do you mean you're really sorry? Like, this, this is really bad, huh? And she's like, well. And then the county health department's, like, literally banging on my door. They're trying to, like, we got to register. You got to, you got, here's an order. They have to have a, a written order from the county. You will stay your ass indoors. You will quarantine for uh, two weeks. Um, you, you know, it, it was creepy. And I just kept feeling weird. I went to the ER three times. Jesus. Over the next three days. Each time they sent me home because my oxygen levels, my, you know, the little thing they put on your finger uh -huh. where they register it has to be between like 95 and 100% to be normal. They said, why don't you go buy one of those little things? So my son in law bought me one. At, they were still selling them. Avoid, avoid coming in here unless this drips below if 95. This <laughs> dropping, then give us a call because then you could have a problem. And of course, uh, in my case, um, that's what began to happen. And um, I started having difficulty breathing. Um, my fever, I, I could take all the, you know, Tylenol in the world and the fever was still through the roof. I was having so bad chills that my teeth were chattering. I would lay in bed at night and my whole body just couldn't stop shaking. And um, and then the OSATs started dropping. Like, they were down to 92, 91, you know. So I called them, and they said, you need to come in right away. And I remember when I got to the hospital, it was late on a Tuesday night. It was following Tuesday. I could barely walk into the ER. I mean, I would take a few steps, and I would stop, and I just struggled to breathe. So I got there. They were ready for me. They brought me in. Um so exactly, so I was admitted to the hospital late Tuesday night, right before midnight that Tuesday. And within 48 hours, I was in intensive care and I was intubated. And they told me if you're, if you're, your oxygen keeps dropping and we keep turning up your oxygen, because they had me on supplemental oxygen and stuff. They said, look, what's going on is your body is taking every ounce of energy it has and it's fight, it's using all that energy just to struggle to breathe. 
and it has no energy left over to, to fight combat. the virus, yeah. okay? So what we might need to do, because there's no cure. There's no cure. There's no therapy. Everything's uh, experimental. In my case, I was getting what, what is called acute respiratory distress signal syndrome. What does that mean? In simple terms, it means I was in single organ failure. That means my lungs were failing on me. And that if they didn't find a way to breathe for me very quickly, other organs would shut down and I would die. And um, they uh, politely told me that. And um, I don't remember the 24 hours really before being brought to the ICU or I have little snippets. I remember talking to my daughter. Um, I remember wanting the doctors to talk to her um, because they, I, I remember the specialist coming in and saying, okay, I think we're going to need to put you on a ventilator, which you don't want to do. And thank God I didn't know the stats at the time because they're not good stats no. about survival rates. Well, yeah, I see the, the one thing we all learn watching the news for better or for worse, is that, yeah, the last thing you want to do is get put on a ventilator. Because once you're on a ventilator, there's no guarantee that you were going to be able to recover and come back and, you know, exactly. get back up on your own two feet. Exactly. And so um, that time came. And, and um, you know, uh, people asked me, you know, what was that like? And it was, you know, I could, I could process it intellectually. Like I knew, okay, I remember asking my team, like, will I wake up? What, you know, what does this do? What are the pros and cons? I want you to talk to my daughter. I wanted my daughter's advice. And I just remember her saying to me, you got a lot to do, Dad. And um, I didn't have time to be emotional about it at the time. I really didn't. Uh, it, things were happening so fast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You were in act mode. You were in like, okay, what do I got to do to get from... Tuesday to Wednesday, Wednesday exactly. to Thursday. You weren't exactly. in like, woe is me. No, hell no. I, no time for that. You know what? I, my daughter um, is everything to me, and she's going to be married. Uh, her wedding uh, is planned for next year. Nice. And you know what? I just knew no matter what the hell happened, I was going to walk that girl down the aisle. And um, I, that was where my head was at. Like, okay, what do we got to do next? Like, okay, we got to rock this for a while. Okay, let's do it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that's where my head was. I wasn't scared for myself or, you know, but I remember the moment. I, I You're like too a, busy to be scared, man. <laughs> dude. But I remember them coming in all of a sudden because I'm kind of out of it already because they were already sedating me a little bit. They were, and all of a sudden there's people walking in with all this equipment and everything. And, and I remember kind of being like startled and like a little bit, um, a little scared in that moment. Like when they came in, I'm like, you're, we're doing this now, like now. And they're like, yeah, now. And, um, that was it. And you know, when you're intubated, so I was, I was on a ventilator for 11 days. I was in ICU for, uh, almost 14. Um, I did have some conscious awareness, uh, at intervals when I was on the ventilator. Um, it's a trip. They give you some heavy duty drugs, man. You have some interesting hallucinations, and I had some trippy hallucinations because it's like a blend of the reality that your brain is taking in your surroundings. And then your brain like makes the rest of the shit up. Right. Because mm. you're on all these drugs. Right. Because they basically put you in a, a coma. Yeah. Drug induced coma. And for 11 uh, days, 11 days. When they told when I came out, finally, when they finally extubated me and I was kind of oriented in the ICU after and they first told me I was on that thing for 11 days, I was like. What's happened? What? Because, like, you know, you have no sense of time, really, particularly when you're out. But it's traumatic because, you know, 
you are every part of your body is plugged into something and something is plugged into every part of your body and you know i had all kinds of lines and ivs i had a big catheter in my artery in my neck you know for blood gases i was i had a feeding tube in my stomach i had all everything was done for me and so your body is just you know there's a lot of holes poked in your body and you're just you know they're they're doing everything for you um and um i lost 30 pounds in two weeks i remember the first time i was kind of awake in the icu and you know how they have the stupid they have the gown on you and everything uh-huh. and then i'm kind of out of it and i remember i lifted my legs up like this just because i was tired of sitting, and the the sheet fell off my legs and man there was no muscle left i looked like a like a in, on a documentary like oh it was gosh. like wasted and i and i i yelled out loud can i cuss on here i'm like what the fuck yeah. i yelled out really and they started laughing you know some <laughs> can of their I cuss on here? Up, like what the fuck like where is my where my legs go i mean it was it was it's amazing what that does my team told me when i was on that ventilator i was probably burning 7000 calories a day mm-hmm. just fighting the virus 7,000 cal. Can you imagine that kind of workout? Oh my God. 7,000 a day, man. I mean, that'd be instant. That's intense. Um, that is intense. Yeah, that's a lot. So, um, you know, I, I got through it. I, I, when I, when I got released on the 4th of April, I had to stay with my daughter and son in law for six weeks. I could not walk. Literally, I could barely, he had to hold the me rebirth up. of Steve Padilla, pretty much. Huh? I walked from here to you, I'd be completely out of breath. Like, I'd have to sit down. I have to sit down and rest because I'd be, it does damage to the lungs. You know, in my case, I'm lucky it's probably not permanent. And, and and for back, a little background, relatively good health when you got hit with this. No underlining, like any conditions, pre, you know. Mild asthma, um, you know, I could have used to lose some weight. Clearly. You did, you did. And I did. <laughs> not, not the way I Not the recommend. way you planned it, but you did. I did. And, you know, um, um, yeah, it's not the plan, but one it was intensely emotional because I remember the night they said, "Hey, man, we're going to move you out of ICU finally. We're going to put you down on the floor." I'm like, "Cool, right? Nice, get out to step up, yeah. right?" Like they're although they're putting me on like a COVID ward, right? Like I'm still pretty sick, but I survived. You know, my body fought off the virus. I'm recovering. And they said, some people have uh, come get you in a little bit. Well, you know how hospitals work, right? When they tell you to come get you in a little bit, that means like hours later, you're still waiting, you know. So I'm laying there, and I'm still a little disoriented, you know. And um, big flat screen, like five, you know, huge flat screen in front of me in this room. And I'm watching like CNN. And the story, they were running, there's two big stories. I'm watching this screen, waiting to get moved. And the story is about this surgeon in New York City who died in his husband's arms because he went to work. He went to work extra hours because he was a physician, he was a surgeon, and he wanted to help because the hospital was needed and he answered the call. He answered the call, man, and he went, he got sick, didn't survive, died in his husband's arms, literally. Second story, high school sweethearts in New Jersey, the, the father, the dad, was a vice principal of a Catholic high school in New Jersey, coached softball, football, soccer. They were at least 10, 15 years younger than me. And she played their wedding song to him on FaceTime as he died oh, on the ventilator. And you know what? All I could do is lay there in that bed 
watching that, and I just laid there and wept all night. That's when the emotions caught up with you? That's when it all caught up with me. And I just, you know, it was intense. And I'm just laying, and I got all the shit hooked up to me, right? And I could, you know, can't even wipe my nose. I'm sitting there crying, you know, because they got all the shit hooked up to me. And I'm just watching this. And you, you know, there's no rhyme or reason. They were younger than me, probably in better shape than me. And here I am, you know, at some point, I'm going to wheel out of this hospital, right? I'm going to put that in the rearview mirror. But, you know, she's playing the wedding song, you know? And, That's crazy. And um, that was that was intense, and that was tough. And that <clears throat> that made me think a lot about how important it is what you make of life while you're here. What you do, what you give your life to means something. And... Um, uh, that that was something, and of course it was that time like they had just shut everything down, you know. The, the literally the day I went on the ventilator was the day the governor signed his ex- first executive order on the nineteenth of March, Ooh. and said, you know, yeah, March sixteenth closed down, March nineteenth updates, and away we go. And the world like, and then they, when I I remember them driving me home, you know, and I'm looking around, everything's like a ghost town. Everything is. There's no traffic, you know, it's the middle of the week. It's like downtown San Diego is like a ghost town, dead. It was, it was like out of a movie, you know, and I, it was out of a movie. It was nuts. Just nuts. But, but look at you now. Here I am. How do you feel? Any, any, uh, lingering effects of being intubated? Any lingering effects from the actual COVID? Do you have to get checked up? At all now, or do you go in for anything? Yeah, I have you taken any COVID tests after all of this? Oh, they make you like in in late April. I had to take two back to back COVID tests. They had to be so many days apart, and they both had to be negative, and they were negative. So I tested negative at the end of April, um, and that I had to have that before I could even go back for like a checkup at my hospital, my doctor, like to get blood drawn or anything. You had to be cleared. So I did, and they monitor me. I have, you know, I have uh, follow-up appointments, you know, every so often. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. Like all the stuff overall looks pretty good. You know, no lingering effects. There's some scarring in my lungs from the pneumonia, but they don't think it's going to be a permanent thing. Hinder anything moving forward. Heart stuff looks good. I do have some tingling and numbness in my legs, but they think that's nerve damage from laying down. For, for 11 days. Yeah. Out, just being no movement. completely, yeah, completely horizontal for a long time. You kind of lay on, you know, and they were proning me too, because you might have seen on the news how they were putting people on their stomachs. On their stomachs, for sure, yeah. To help the circulation mm-hmm, in the lung. And mm-hmm. they were doing that. But what I didn't know, when you're intubated and you're hooked up to all this equipment, it takes six people to basically turn you over on your stomach. And it, it's a process. Like it doesn't, they just don't come and flip you over. They, it's like an hour long process to just move you. And they were doing that apparently with me every, every night uh, for a period of time. So they were, they were proning me constantly. Um, and I probably did some nerve damage there a little bit. And that, that will come back last. They said that takes, that could take a year or more to come back. But overall, man, I do my walk, starting to get back to the gym carefully. It's a little scary. I do some uh, walk, kind of walk, run, walk, you know, around the, the golf course in Benita, um, which is just an awesome feeling when you think about, you know, I remember that April 4th, man, my, my son-in-law, who's was a big strapping dude, you know, had to literally hold me up because I couldn't take two steps, you know, I mean. That's some perspective right there, man. When you're out on the golf yeah. course and you're walking. Doing you know, this on my own now, walking out, you're breathing it all in. Yeah. 
three, four miles at a shot you and know? I couldn't walk three steps. Okay. Life is good. You know, Getting there's better. There's uh there's always a reason for for joy and gratitude and hope. And even after all of these experiences you've gone through, you still want to go back and be in the uh, political sphere, huh? Hell yes, I do. That's where that's the lifelong goal. That's that's the ultimate. Can you ignorant question? Can you uh, run again for mayor? Do you do- I've been asked, uh-huh. and and I, I, my answer is, well, yeah, I could, but I've been there, done that. Because you didn't term out, right? It was just like a yeah, you can do well in Chula Vista. We don't have complete lifetime ban term limits. We have like term restrictions, so uh-huh. you can do two consecutive terms on the council, or and you can do two consecutive terms as mayor, but you have to wait out a cycle. Like you, you have to go away and then for jump a couple back in. years. Then you can run again if you want. I kind of like that arrangement because it's a balance between the term limit people and the no term limit people. Because I think people should have the right to pick their leaders and keep their leaders if they like them. If they like them for And sure. if they want to fire them, they can do that too. But it's not a lifetime ban, but it does it does give a break there so that everybody doesn't always just have the advantage of incumbency and it gives other people a shot. So that's kind of where I think Chula Vista, again, has been kind of a leader in that. I think our system is kind of unique in the whole region and it's a good system. Um, you may or may not have read or saw, but you know, I've had a lot of people encourage me to do some, have a bigger impact on a bigger scale. Um, and I am actively looking at that. And I, you know, uh, depending on how things go in this election, uh, on November 3rd, I may be, I may be in a race, uh, for the, the state Senate in California. You? You. So, um, and that's a bigger deal. That's, that's you know, deal. that's a million people in that district. Yeah. And, that's um that's a lot, but it's it takes a kind too. of person to look for that man. That's crazy. It's my passion. That's crazy. It's I'm my the passion. I'm the complete antithesis of that. I just kind of <laughs> like, no, I'll just go home. I'm good. It's Friday. It's eight. I'm good. Let's watch a movie in bed. You got your thing. You know what this this thing at least as it relates to the podcast. This is my therapy. This is as much as I'll like. Ah, I'm not an introvert, but I'm not uh, an extrovert. You know, like I I know. What I need to like get off of my chest. I know what I need to kind of get me through the day. And it would freak me the fuck out to be involved in something like that. Really? Yes, sir. Yes, but, sir. But this. you got, you know, community around you that yeah. people know you, people love yeah, you, people and, respect you, people know. Like, but I'm not on a pedestal. On. You know, I'm not going to like voluntarily put myself out there and be like, this is what I have. This is what the views that I would like to share with you. Like that, that takes courage, man. That's why I tip my cap to you. That, yeah, a I little craziness. A, yeah, a, little, a lot of craziness, you know, to all politicians, better for worse, good or bad politicians. A certain like tip of the cap is, is required on our behalf to be like, man, you guys are going up there. You're showing the guts that we obviously don't have. You guys, not all of you guys, some, most of you guys are a very polished piece of what you want to present to the public, you know, but crazy crazy you know i have kids i have a family i have these businesses i res- I, I i would much rather have peace and quiet my man no but you know sometimes i envy that and i <laughs> I, I think much the same thing sometimes like am i am i nets like what am i you know why am i bothering with this because sometimes it is a thankless it is a thankless job it's like no matter what you do sometimes you just piss somebody off you're right? highlighted yeah. by the negatives that are surrounding you as opposed to the positives it takes a lot of positive a lot of things for you to get accolades or acknowledgements or positive reinforcement it takes a misstep a half step that you fuck up on and it seems like everyone is coming down on you i see the social media posts man you know i i, I follow you i 
you guys can't post anything. And I say you guys. I have a couple of people that I know that are actively like in politics and, and are running for certain seats or positions. And you guys can't post anything without getting flack coming your way. It's like, hey, what a beautiful day. Oh, really? Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, Jesus Christ. You can't say anything without a group of people just coming at you. I was telling that to Ms. Mary. I was like, Mary, fuck. How do you go through that? I was like, I don't even know how you put up with that shit. Like, all you're doing is reporting. These are today's numbers for COVID in Chula Vista, the county of San Diego, the city of San Diego. Oh, those numbers are fake. Those numbers, where are you getting those numbers? And la, 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 la. Do more. You're doing too much. I'm like, shit. All you said was like, I'm just reporting what happened. This is what's going on. And you got to, you got to, because you got to empower people with the truth, man. You just can't BS people. You just say, you know, and they may or may not like it. But you got to be out there with the truth so people can be empowered. And the reality is, like, on you know, in South Bay, Chula Vista, if you just took our numbers alone, they're not great. You know, there's higher rates of transmission and infection. Here in the South Bay. Here, Here in, in, our, South in our zip in codes, the 91910, the 91911s, the 92154s, those were shit for like the last two three months have been steadily increasing. I feel like they've kind of like become plateaued at, to an extent now, but it's still there. Yeah, it's still, it's still there, and we gotta be, um, we gotta be smart, and we gotta, you know, listen to people, and 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 we can still be creative, you know, we'll find a way, but it's gonna be a different way for a while. Yeah, you know, and uh, but this idea that we go out and act stupid on purpose, you know, uh, is you're gonna hurt somebody else. Yeah, you know? it might be not be you. Yeah, but it might be your grandparent or somebody, a friend of a friend, or their parents or their grandparents that are vulnerable, and it could kill them. Yeah, uh, trust me, it, it could kill them. And um, yeah, so it's just get knowledge is power, man. You got to tell people what's going on and empower them to to be able to act and to do to take care of themselves. And if you lie to people. It's just wrong on so many levels, you know. Uh, you got to tell them the truth, even if the truth sucks. Yeah, I mean, it's better know? to face it with the honesty and be like, "Oh man, we could have done this a long time ago, and things would have been okay." You should have just told. It is what it is, you know. It's I, I don't even want to say water under the bridge, but there's really not much we can do. No, we, we are where we are, and right. now we have to adjust. We have to adjust, and we can, we will. There'll be the day. It seems so weird right now to think about, like you know, the days when things be how they were before COVID, right? BC, yeah. we call that before COVID. Yeah, BC, <laughs> man, that's a good term. <laughs> BC, I love it. It's a whole different BC. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Mr. Padilla, yeah. thank you for coming in here, man. Hell yes. I know I you got it. a lot more to say. I see it in your face. I feel yeah, like you want to talk about. We, I want to keep bringing you in here as the, as the elections come in. I need a political a political view on things. So cool. I want, yeah, I want to bring I'm you down. in, like when when like you know, getting close to election day. Give like, you my know, analysis. Yeah, because I mean. I've never really been uh, – I enjoy sports, you know? No. I, I enjoy those things. I really lose myself in those things, you know? Yeah. I, I enjoy things that require strategy. And it just – the more and more I started, like, paying attention to to CNN, to Fox, to MSNBC, to the Young Turks, because I just threw myself in everything. You know, I was like, you know what? If I'm going to learn about politics, I need to find out both spectrums. The far right, the far left, you know, the, the, the social liberal, but the uh, fiscally conservative, like everything, you know. So I listen to a lot of podcasts. Yeah. I watch a lot of news sources because I don't ever want to be pigeonholed. Oh, well, that guy only watches this la la la. All he pays attention is the, the, the. no, man. I, li- I will listen to like a Ben Shapiro podcast, but then I'll listen to the Young Turks podcast. You know, I listen to Joe Rogan, but then I'll listen to I'll just listen to a lot of shit. And 
ultimately, I think everybody wants us to succeed. You know, every I think ultimately everybody's goal is for America to, to rise above, and you know, we're on top well. and doing the right thing and all in the right direction. But goddamn, they have different ways of going about it, and that's when I got involved with like paying attention because it's strategy. This is a game. Politics is a fucking game. It's a dance, and there are those who enjoy the dance and those who know the game but can't dance for shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> well said. You know, so it's like I see well a lot said. of these people that are involved, like, all right, they put this guy involved because he knows how to dance and he knows the game. But the real, like, Cyrano de Bergerac kind of guys are in the background that are saying, hey, do this, do that. I'm not, no, I'm not meant for this stage. I'm not meant for this. This is what you need to do. I'm like, wow. So now, even wifey, like, it, it's funny, like, we're in, we're all about it. Like, I watch it, I'm like, ooh, I'm just, like, tapped in. And now that there, we have city elections coming up and everything, I was like, oh, now I actually know some of the players involved, you know? And it I, affects you. Yeah, and it's like, yes. I know what they're about. You know, it's like, some of them, like, they're spouting certain things, and I'm like, man, no, <laughs> that's not what you're about, you know? And the other was like, oh, this. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, that person is, they're genuine about it. That That's what they represent. I enjoy it now as much as sports. I love it. it sports is kind doesn't of a sport in the sports won't ultimately help define my family. Local politics does. Absolutely. Local politics puts things into perspective for my kids schooling for, you know, financially in the neighborhood, like all of these things, all of these choices and these options that we have that we have to, you know, approach with 100% sincerity and and respect. It all comes back to us. Now that I'm older, you know, I, I see that. It's crazy. So again, I tip my cap for somebody like you that jumps in. Takes Thanks, their role man. seriously, comes here from the community, has worn all of the hats that I feel like make you very credible when you're up on on stage, you know, spouting your rhetoric or, or you know, like kind of winning the hearts over hearts and minds of people. It's like it takes a lot of fucking balls and it takes a lot of education and knowledge. It's, you know, it's for me, it's about the work, man. It's always about it's a means to an end. Yeah. It's like what remains to be done? Why should that be what remains to be done? And how do we get it done? And uh, for me politics is the center of action it is it involves it, it touches everything, everything. every discipline. if you want to admit it or not it's in everything it's in it's sports in it's, it's in, in fucking everything. sports it's in entertainment it's in entrepreneurship it's in your family dynamic you want to ruin a christmas dinner a oh, thanksgiving shit. dinner yeah, fucking, yeah. don't talk about know, it man jump in talk about religion talk, talk about politics you know <laughs> that'll ruin it all but talk yeah food, brother. Some good mr food. padilla thank you brother i'm happy you're vertical thank you i'm, I'm very... happy you're vertical i'm happy i'm happy you have a uh, uh, uh Fucking awesome safety net with your daughter and your son-in-law and everybody that surrounds you. It seems that everybody really takes care of you, protects you, and cares a lot about you. And for that, you're vertical. I am. You know, felicidades. We look forward to seeing what else Goodness. comes our way through you. Absolutely. And keep us keep us posted, brother. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. That is a wrap for this episode of the Emo Brown, the Saddest Mexican podcast. Make sure to give us a follow on Instagram at Emo Brown. Give us a shout out at Twitter. We're on there too. And at Facebook, for those of you who still use Facebook, we're on there as well. More importantly, give us a visit at emobrown.com. That's where you can find all of our episodes, all of the merch, and there's more merch coming, as well as access to the Patreon Club. Join in the Emo Brown Social Club. Don't be a stranger. Pop on in there. Join, submit, follow. Todo el pedo. We appreciate your support. Thank you very much. Big things are coming. Besitos. Shot.